Perhaps you remember what is often rated as one of the best commercials of all time. It first aired in 1971, and it's usually called the Crying Indian Ad. Now, some are way, way too young to remember this ad. So, let's watch it together. Let's watch the ad. bring back memories or what? That little black and white TV. That commercial was all over the place in the early 70s. The Indian who cried that famous tear was Iron Eyes Cody. An article from the Chicago Tribune from November of last year, 2017, about this commercial says the ad won many prizes and is still ranked as one of the best commercials of all time. By the mid-1970s and Ad Council official noted, TV stations have continually asked for replacement films of the commercial because they have literally worn out the originals from constant showings. For many Americans, the crying Indian became the quintessential symbol of environmental idealism. But a closer examination of the ad reveals that neither the tear nor the sentiment was what it seemed to be. Let me say that again. Chicago Tribune says, but a closer examination of the ad reveals that neither the tear nor the sentiment was what it seemed to be. See, Iron Eyes uh, Cody, um, he had become the face of native Indians, was even honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. Long before his fame in this commercial in the 70s, Iron Eyes Cody was featured as the noble Indian starring in over 200 Western films alongside of John Wayne and Ronald Reagan. Eventually, a reporter visited Iron Eyes Cody's hometown and made the startling discovery. Both of his parents were full-blooded Italians. He was not Native American at all, and never was. His real name was Aspera Oscar de Corte. Here's the thing. Even after it was revealed who he really was, Iron Eyes Cody refused to admit the truth, refused to acknowledge his parents and his brothers and sisters, always keeping this fake persona. He was fake. He played something on the outside that he wasn't on the inside. But you see, that's not the only fake thing about this commercial. It was made by a fake environmental advocacy group called Keep America Beautiful. 
Keep America Beautiful was actually composed of the leading beverage and packaging corporations like Coca-Cola and Dixie Cup and others. See, the focus of the early 70s environmental movement across the United States was on the issue of the proliferation of all these new throwaway containers. They were putting pressure on the industry to hold them responsible for this proliferation of disposable items that depleted natural resources and created so much more solid waste. Litter was increasing so much. Trash amounts were increasing so much because industry had transitioned into a more throwaway packaging process. So, Keep America Beautiful, funded by the leading beverages and packaging companies, actually was practicing a sly form of propaganda in that commercial. The Chicago Tribune article said, since the corporations behind the campaign never publicized their involvement, audiences assumed that the group was a disinterested party. At the moment the tear appears, the, the, the narrator in baritone voice says, people start pollution. People can stop it. See, by making individual viewers feel guilty and responsible for the polluted environment, the ad deflected the question of the responsibility away from the corporations and placed it squarely entirely in the realm of the individual actions concealing the role of industry in polluting the landscape. Thus, they turned the litter debate away from the companies and on to the person. So the messenger was fake and the message. The message was fake. It wasn't at all about an Indian being touched by careless litter. It was an impersonating Indian trying to deflect criticism away from corporate responsibility. It was a fake. It's a great illustration of what's going on in our passage today in our scripture. People who are one thing on the outside, but are something totally different on the inside. Everything appears right. Everything sounds right. It looks good. We think we know what the message is. But in reality... In the insightful perception of God, there is something significantly off. Something wrong on the inside. It looks all real, but in actuality, it's fake. This is our challenge today. To evaluate if we are the real deal on the inside. So please turn with me in your scriptures to John, excuse me, to Matthew. Matthew chapter 7. So we continue in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So we come near the conclusion of the teaching on the sermon. We're now in Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 21. These are the words of our Lord. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Father, we pray now, specifically, as we try to have you 
take your word through the power of your Holy Spirit and the truth of it and challenge us, convict us, give us insight into our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. One commentator said these surely are in many ways the most solemn words ever uttered in this world, not only by any man, but even by the Son of God himself. See, today's sermon is serious, and it's sober. Because Jesus is talking to religious people. He's basically preaching to people who think they are real followers of God. As we've seen throughout the Sermon on the Mount, in so many ways, as Jesus is preaching this sermon, it's like he's preaching it to us. Now, the gist of this passage is easy to understand. Some people who think they're in, who think they they will enter the kingdom of heaven, who say the right things, and even have done some really amazing good deeds, they're going to find out on that day that they never had a relationship with Christ. He does not know them. It was all show and no substance. It was all outside and no inside. It was all religion and no relationship. It was all their doing and none of his doing. It was all imitation and not real. It was all counterfeit and not genuine. They expected admission into the kingdom. They expected to hear positive words of commendation, only to shockingly hear Jesus say to them, Depart from me, I never knew you. That is sobering, very sobering. Could that be us? Could that be you? That's the question of the day. So first, what is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of heaven is a big theme. We've talked about it before. The kingdom of heaven has already started, but is yet to come. We're to seek it first now. We're supposed to live in it now. And we will enter into it yet in the future. The kingdom of heaven is both already and not yet. Jesus is reigning and ruling as king right now over his kingdom followers. And yet he also will reign and rule in the future millennial kingdom. In his first coming, his first advent, he came and established a spiritual kingdom. In his second advent, his second coming, he will come and establish a physical kingdom. The only way to enter the future physical kingdom is by now entering into the spiritual kingdom. Our admittance to the physical kingdom of Christ's future reign is by entering into the present kingdom, following Christ's reign and rule as our king today. If you want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, then you need to enter into his spiritual kingdom. See, the kingdom of heaven is the rule of God over the hearts and lives of his people, both now and forever. The rule of God over us, both now and forever. Jesus, in our passage, clearly teaches who doesn't make it into his kingdom and who does. So first, let's look at who doesn't get into the kingdom of heaven. The first group of people is not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Some people who say, Lord, Lord, will enter his kingdom, but not everybody. Some will not. As a matter of fact, you can say that a requirement of entrance into the kingdom is to acknowledge that Jesus is your Lord. Romans ten nine and 10 says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. 
and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Part of the process of the Spirit moving us, calling us to salvation in Christ, is confessing Jesus Christ as our Lord, confessing him as the ruler, the leader, the director of our lives. Addressing Jesus as Lord is addressing him as Yahweh. To address Jesus as Lord is to address him as the one true God. seems like the double use of the word Lord here was to create a sense of intense zeal or a sense that demonstrates uh, strength of devotion. Because for many, saying Lord, Lord is an act of true worship. For many, saying Lord, Lord, they say it because they love Jesus. It's an act of reverence and worship and relationship. But as he said, that's not true for everybody. Not everybody who calls Jesus Lord is actually one of his followers. Some say, Lord, Lord. Maybe perhaps with a sense of respect, but not with the reverence of relationship. They're saying, Lord, Lord, because that's what you're supposed to say. Not because that's what they really believe. They say, Lord, Lord, because, you know, that's how, what it's supposed to be. But in their real, actual lives, they do not confess him as the leader, the ruler of their, of their lives. Just saying the right thing has never gotten anybody into the kingdom of heaven. Our words do not save us. Jesus saves us. Our words simply express the faith that he has brought to our hearts. Our words express the spiritual realization that the Holy Spirit has wrought in our hearts, bringing us to understand and accept who Jesus is and what he has done. The mere saying of biblically true statements saves no one. A true believer will say, Lord, Lord, but he doesn't stop at merely saying them. One of the great warnings of the teaching of Jesus is not to base the assurance of our salvation upon the mere repetition of certain statements or formula. Oh, I walked down an aisle and I repeated the words the preacher told me to say, so I'm in. I'm saved. Well, maybe yes, and maybe no. See, the assurance of our salvation doesn't come from our words. It comes from Christ's work in our heart. Salvation is not a transaction. It's the beginning of a transformational relationship with the God of the universe. Salvation is not a sign on a dotted line, get out of hell free card, fire insurance policy. (coughs) Salvation is the accepting and the proclaiming that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. He has saved you from your sins and he rules your life today. You're not just saying the words. You're declaring a whole new direction for your life. Salvation is the old passing away. And behold, all things becoming new. See, Jesus doesn't want us to be surprised on that day through the self-deception of believing that salvation is some formula. That salvation is just reciting the right words. Evaluate. Is your assurance of your salvation in your words or in Christ's work? Is your assurance of your salvation in your prayer 
or in Christ's propitiation, in Christ's atoning work on the cross, taking the wrath of God for our sins. Can you look back over the years, over the last few weeks and months, and see how Christ is changing you? Can you look at your life now and see the hand of God guiding you in obedience? See, the assurance of our salvation doesn't come from our words, but from the clear evidence in our lives that He is reigning and ruling and changing us, that He is our Lord and Savior, that He is ruling our lives. You see, we were dead, but now we're alive. We were blind, but now we see. We were lost, but now we're found. The genuineness of our salvation should be a vivid, daily reality. Not just some words you said years ago. See, don't be deceived. Some on that day are going to say, Lord, Lord. They're going to say the right thing. And they will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You know, the other person described by Jesus as not entering the kingdom of heaven is a person who's relying on their good deeds. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do great things in your name? Didn't we do all these amazing good deeds in your name? Doesn't that earn us a spot in your kingdom? Jesus will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now think about this example. Judas, Judas did great things for Jesus. Judas called him Lord. He did amazing, miraculous kinds of things in Jesus' name. When Jesus sent out the 12 apostles to minister, that means he sent out Judas as well. And this in Matthew 6.13 says what they did. It says they cast out many demons and anointed many uh, who were sick and healed them. Judas called Jesus Lord. Judas did great works in Jesus' name. But he's saying the right thing and doing the right things without the right heart, without a changed heart, is of no spiritual value. With Jesus, it's never about the deeds, and it's always about the heart. The good works that Jesus wants for us comes after our heart is committed to him. We see that so clearly in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It gives the biblical order perfectly clear. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says, For by grace you've been saved, Through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, salvation is a gift from God by grace, through faith. It's not of our own doing. It's impossible to earn. It's impossible to merit. Romans 6.23 tells us what, you know, what we merit. Tells us what we earn. It says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our deeds do earn something, and they earn death. 
But the free gift of God, eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord is through his death, is through Jesus' death, through his resurrection. It's the gift that God gives us to leading to eternal life. We're never saved by works, but we are saved to work. We are God's workmanship. We're never saved by our deeds, but when we are truly saved by grace through faith, we get to live out our lives as a masterpiece of God's work created in Christ Jesus for good works. Faith alone saves, but faith is never alone. Like a car that never moves, like a light that never shines, like food that's never eaten like love that's never shared, like a well without water is faith without deeds, dead, useless. We're never saved by works, but we are saved to works. James makes this so clear in his letter. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith that does not show itself in action is actually faithless. It's dead. It's not real. It's fake. James goes on to say, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Demons have some really good theology. They know the right things. They actually believe in God. But their belief is not salvation because they don't trust. They They don't have faith. They don't have the kind of trust that actually changes the way they live their lives. It's our quote from Billy Sunday in our sermon in a sentence there says, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you an automobile. See, no good deeds we do, none merit God's grace. No good deeds we do earn God's favor. No good deeds we do receive extra points with God. No, our good deeds are simply the response of faith that has already begun in our lives. They're an act of worship from a life that is already being changed. They're an effect of the heart that is already committed to Christ. Good works are the evidence of a true faith, not ever the actions to earn God's approval. They might be calling him Lord. They might be doing these good deeds. But it was not a response to God's amazing gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. But instead it was actually a a way of trying to sway God, to try to influence him so that they could earn their own way to eternal life. How many millions of people this morning have got it all backwards? How many people all around us today are going the wrong way? And on that day, they're going to say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these great things in your name? And they're going to be shocked. When Jesus responds, depart from me, I never knew you. Evaluate. Could that be us? Could that be you? We have to get this right. And we have to get this right today. So preacher, if you're saying that saying the right things doesn't get me into the kingdom of heaven, and if doing the right things don't get me into the kingdom of heaven, then what? 
What gets me into the kingdom of heaven? Jesus tells us. Who does get into the kingdom of heaven? Verse 21 says, The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. The person who does the will of the Father, that is the one who gets into the kingdom of heaven. So what is the ultimate will of the Father? Above all things, what does God want you to do? It's actually pretty clear in the Bible. John 6.40 says, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. John 6.29 says, And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who has sent me. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. 1 John 3.23, And this is God's commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and we love one another just as he commanded us. John 14, 20 to 24. In that day you will know that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and and he will and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. See, doing the will of God doesn't start with actions, but it starts with belief. It starts with love. We believe first, then we obey. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. We love first, then we obey. John fourteen fifteen says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Good works for God come after we believe in his son, after we love his son. Trying to do good deeds to earn your way to heaven without first believing in the son, without first loving the son, is actually, in reality, rejecting the son. It's rejecting that God sent his son to save us. It's actually rejecting the very one thing that God wants most for us. To know his son. To love his son. Who gets into the kingdom of heaven? The person who does what God wants the most. To believe in his son and to love his son. Then Jesus concludes his sobering teaching saying, I never knew you, depart from me. Now, that obviously doesn't mean that he isn't aware of who people are. He knows quite well everyone. He knows us. He knows each one of us. What is specifically talking about when he says, I don't know you? What's he talking about here is the knowledge of relationship. To know is a biblical reference to intimacy. It's not mere intellectual knowledge, but it's connection, it's union, it's caring. Jesus said in John 10, 14 and 15, I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me as the father knows me. And I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Our entry into the kingdom of heaven isn't based on who we know, but on who knows us. It's not 
based on our union with Christ, but on His union with us. It's never about us, and it's always about Him. It's always about His grace. It's always about His love and His mercy and His forgiveness. His death and His resurrection. What Jesus is saying is that if, if He doesn't know you, if He doesn't have an intimate, caring connection with you, because when He revealed Himself to you, you did not respond in faith, if he has no relationship with you, then he's going to say to you, depart from me, I never knew you. But if he has an intimate, caring connection with you, because when he revealed himself to you, you did respond in faith. If he has a relationship with you, then on that day he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Who gets into the kingdom of heaven? The person who is known by Jesus. Jesus' words here in verse 23 are pretty stark and even blunt. He calls the works of people that think they're earning their standing with God lawlessness. When you put good works before faith, when you say the right words but you have no heart change, when you think you're earning points with God, when you think that somehow you're earning your own favorable standing with God, Jesus says, in reality, you're doing the works of lawlessness because you're doing what you thought was righteous when in reality it's the height of unrighteousness because you're rejecting the Son, the person and the work of Jesus. How sad, think about that, how shockingly sad to think you're in and you're not. I have a friend, David Elkhorn, from seminary. When I was assistant pastor at Fellowship Baptist Church, Warsaw, Indiana, he uh, was a part of our church. He was a leader of the church. Upon graduating, he pursued becoming a missionary to Norway. About five years ago on Facebook, David posted this. I just want to say thank you to God for his gift of salvation. This past Monday, on October 7th, I celebrated my first spiritual birthday. I had spent years of my life thinking that I was on the right path. I will be eternally grateful that God broke through my hard, self-deceived heart and brought me to repentance for my sins. Thank you, Jesus. So now listen to me closely. Dave grew up in a Christian home. He had great knowledge about God. He chose to live a Christian lifestyle. He understood the Christian lifestyle to be the best. He wanted that for himself and for his family. He understood the facts of salvation. It made sense to him. It was reasonable. He liked Jesus and the things of Jesus. He taught Sunday school. He was a deacon. He had a shoulders-up connection to God. It was all a reasonable choice. Frankly, it was what everybody expected of him. And what he expected of himself, he had God in his mind and not in his heart. For so many years, he thought Christianity was something you do, a way to act, a way of life. What God really wanted was outside actions to say the right things and to do the right things. But then God's grace broke through and God taught him that true Christianity is not something you do. It's something you are. It's something you become. Salvation is not mental assent to a group of certain facts. 
Salvation is not reciting some prescribed speech. Salvation is the start of a transformational relationship with Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins, putting your trust and of your future and your past and your present in Jesus, pledging your life to be spent in worshipful obedience to him. Salvation is coming to Jesus on the cross for forgiveness. Coming to Jesus in his resurrection for victory over sin. God doesn't just want our right words. He doesn't just want our good deeds. He wants us. All of us. Salvation's not a shoulders up life. Salvation brings us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, with all our might. Perhaps today you've been in this room and the Spirit of God has been challenging you. Perhaps today you've come to realize that the whole thing has just been outward focused. Perhaps today you've come to realize that you've said the right words, that you've done the right deeds, but your heart is not connected and committed to Jesus Christ. It's with the heart that we believe, love our Christ. Let the power of God's amazing grace change your life today. Beloved, it doesn't matter if you've been going to this church for 20 years. It doesn't matter if you've been living the Christian lifestyle for decades. What matters for you right now is that you do the spiritual work of Romans 8.16 where it says the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Ask. And the Spirit will bear witness to you that you're his child. So talk to God today. We're soon to have this time of communion. It's a great time to come fully clean before God today. Thank him for the salvation you have. Or come to him in repentance for your sins and to believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and died for your sins and put your full trust of your life in him. It's time to stop faking it. It's time to test yourself and evaluate to take those sober words of Jesus Christ and let them penetrate your soul. Everything might appear right. Look at your heart. Don't let this moment pass without making sure of your admission into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, what a powerful sermon you spoke all those years ago. We spent time this morning looking at just these three verses of what you said. They're penetrating, it's sobering. But it's so easy sometimes in our Christian culture to walk like a Christian, to look like a Christian, to kind of have all the the right Christian words and yet not be changed and yet, yet not have a real relationship with you. It's possible to fake it. And your challenge then is a challenge to us now to not fake it. And I pray, Lord, for each one of us 
each one of us in here, that we will, uh, you know, in thankfulness, cry out to you, thanking you for the salvation you've given to us as the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And for maybe some here that have put their assurance in some outward act rather than on relationship that your spirit might convict them and they might come. So from your heart, from your own words, the spirit is working in your heart and conviction is upon you. Admit. Admit your sin. Admit your inability to save yourself. Admit your pride. Right now, talk to God and admit. Believe. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God, your Savior, that Jesus died for your sin, that he rose again in victory for your sin. Tell him that you believe it. And repent. Turn from those sins and turn to your Savior. Confess. Confess him as your Lord. Confess him as the leader of your life. His word is now your joy. His goals are now your priority. His love is now the sustenance of your life. In the quietness of these moments between you and God, just talk with him from your heart and life to him. Father, we pray, thanking you so much for the assurance of our salvation based on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.